is The Guardian. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash Nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Hi, Ian here. Science Weekly is having a Christmas break. And so this week we're featuring a mini-series from our Guardian Australia colleagues called Weight of the World. Today's episode is all about the climate scientists who saw the crisis coming and what it was like to sound the alarm when no one was listening. I hope you enjoy it. I often wonder, you know, where did I go wrong? Why didn't people respond? Is that my responsibility? If you knew the world was heading for a crisis, what would you do? The amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has reached its highest level in at least 800,000. Australia has lost more mammal species than any other continent. We're seeing these mass bleaching events every few years. There just will not be the opportunity for the corals to recover. And you were the scientist who saw it coming. I'm feeling a sense of failure. 40 years of trying to get the science in place to solve the problem. How do you keep going? We become quite good at partitioning off bits of our brain. You put all the negative stuff in a little box and you put a wall around it and you try to keep going. I'm Graham Redfern and I'm a journalist for Guardian Australia. I started writing about climate change nearly 20 years ago and when you're talking about climate change, there aren't too many good news stories. Fires, floods, heat waves, supercharged storms, disappearing ice, and all this while the fossil fuel industry is making record profits. Chevron, along with four other major oil companies, are expected to report roughly 190 billion in combined profits from 2022. Writing about one climate study after another, after another, and then seeing predictions turn into reality, it gets on top of me sometimes. So what about the climate change scientists? The people making these discoveries about what we're doing and what we're going to do to the planet and everything that lives on it. What did they do when they knew? And can their experience tell us anything about how we can keep going? This is Weight of the World, a three-part series from Guardian Australia about three scientists who first predicted the climate crisis. Over three episodes, we'll hear how they made their discoveries. We have a problem. The climate is going to change as a result of CO2 increases in the atmosphere. How they came under attack for their climate warnings. There were things like you know, death threats and, you're a communist, I hope you die. And what gives them hope? The way I keep going is to say, all right, no one can do everything, but everybody can do something. Part one. Oh, shit. Hi, Graham. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for coming. Oh, no worries. So Graham Pearman is basically one of the grandfathers of Australian climate science. One of the first people here to see the impending crisis. Let's get to it. Come on. Okay, let's show you. I'll show you inside. I'm Graham Pearman. I'm a climate scientist and I've been so for 50 years. 
He joined the CSIRO, the government science agency, in 1971. CSIRO is Australia's national science, engineering and digital research agency. We solve the world's biggest challenges through science. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do research. My training was in biology. That was my first exposure to climate variability and climate change. This is the early 1970s. We know carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. We know by then that if it starts to build up in the atmosphere, it's going to warm the planet. But can you actually measure this build-up? And is it happening everywhere? So CSIRO hires Pearman and another scientist called John Garrett to try and find out. And part of that was an experiment that was being done at Rutherglen in 1971 and 72, looking at the growth of a wheat crop. And what they needed to know was how quickly carbon dioxide was going out of the atmosphere into the wheat crop, because that's what growth is, Mm. the movement of carbon into the plant. And to do that, they needed someone to measure a very small difference in concentration between the one and two metre level above the crop. They start looking at, well, the fundamentals, measuring how many molecules of CO2 there are in the air. Is it going up or down? And how is it mixing in the air? And John and I were given that task. Neither of us had ever measured CO2 before in our lives. So every Thursday, we would draw air from about a 10 metre high mask and measure its absolute concentration as precisely as we could then. We didn't have international standards. We had to create our own standards. And we developed the system for making those differences very precise measurements. This is the beginning. This is where climate science in Australia actually starts. When we measured it, we found the concentration was almost the same as what was being measured at Mauna Loa, Hawaii, by a guy called David Keeling. The Mauna Loa Observatory began the measurements in 1958. It took nearly the end of the International Geophysical Year period before it got started. But once it was there, it was clear it was going to make some interesting results. Who was the only person in the world that was measuring precisely atmospheric CO2 concentration. The concentration variation that we measured at Mauna Loa Observatory was about six parts per million between summer and winter. So Keeling's measuring CO2 and he says it's going up. And the reason it's going up is because of all the fossil fuels we're burning. We found that as we traced it into the second year, it was a little bit higher. And by the third year, it was quite clear that it was going to be higher each year. At least it was being higher each year than it was before for the same time of the year. So we were getting an increase from year to year. What did you think? Well, we thought he had drifting standards. We thought he's, he's got to be wrong. How could humans, mere humans, actually influence the global climate? Now, the curiosity for the two of us was, why should the concentration be the same above this growing wheat crop, almost the same at least, and on the top of a mountain in Hawaii, two hemispheres that are totally different? Why should that be the case? To find out more, Pearman needs more measurements from different places. Well, we we decided we didn't want to be right where active exchange uh, of carbon dioxide was taking place, like right over the top of a wheat crop. So we wanted to go into the open atmosphere, 
So we started to hire light aircraft and take up glass containers that we would pump full of air. In 1972, Pierman starts measuring air from planes, attaching the flasks to air vents. We contacted Trans Australia Airlines, which was TAA, was a, one of the major airlines in those days, and convinced them to fly in their cabin these glass flasks and have their crew fill them with air for us. We did the same with Qantas. So very quickly we had information or, or data coming in about the concentration of carbon dioxide all over southern Australia and New Zealand. Within about a year, we knew that Keeling was right. The concentration was going up. And so the imperative then was to go back and say, well, if that's true, we have a problem. The climate is going to change as a result of CO2 increases in the atmosphere. Can I ask, what, what were you thinking at this point? You've done the measurements now. You're fairly confident you know where the CO2 is coming from and why it's rising. H how are you feeling about these discoveries that you're making? I think at, at that stage, my natural scepticism as a scientist uh, kept on saying to me, well, we might be wrong. But the, at the same time, saying, well, uh, this could be actually a very important issue to change the temperature of the planet is no mean feat. While Graham Pearman is measuring the air above us, Alpha Goldberg is finding a new world beneath the ocean surface on the Great Barrier Reef. Getting in the water, putting you know our masks on with our snorkels and started to sort of paddle around, something incredible happened. There was this this fish. It was, it was this thing. It was copper-banded butterfly fish. It was just incredible. And it had little birefringent blue things around. It had these spectator bars. It had this mouth that was designed for getting amongst the coral and pulling the invertebrates out and eating them. There were giant clams and sea cucumbers. And that was just incredible. Reefs are incredible. They cover less than 1% of the world's ocean floor, but they're home to about a quarter of all marine species. The fish that live on them provide food for millions of people, and they are wondrous. It was like, like Chicago underwater. Just had all these places to live, these highways, all this was going on, and it was, you start to just see something that's beyond valuable. You just can't put a number on that experience. I mean, yeah, the love of my life. Paul Goldberg has studied reefs and corals, these loves of his life, for almost 30 years. He's Professor in Marine Studies at the University of Queensland. So how did you come to researching corals and specifically corals and temperature and this thing we now know as coral bleaching? Mm. Well, in the early 1980s, I went to do my PhD at UCLA in California and they'd noticed that corals around the world were turning white. And so one of the questions that was on everyone's mind was, you know, well, what's happening here? You know, why are the corals going white and is it a problem? How is this information reaching you? Are you, are you well, seeing it on the TV? Are you getting letters? Scientists in, yeah. in the Caribbean, in Florida, they were seeing that when you had the doldrums come through, which is when it was still and warm and the 
temperature of the water increased quite rapidly, you'd see this phenomenon of bleaching. It was sort of a matter of curiosity that we all got involved. You know, what is it about? Is it a disease? As part of my PhD, I did experiments to try and find out how you could simulate or, or trigger bleaching. And would that then give you an idea about whether it was a disease or whether it was you know, too much light or was it too much temperature and so on? So did you have a hunch and did the other scientists have a hunch why these we, places... Yeah, about that on? time, everyone was sort of speculating, but no one had done the experiment. And so I did the experiment as part of my PhD with a colleague called Jason Smith, who was a, an American scientist. So describe and, the experiment for me. What's what? Yeah, well, it's really, really, it's, it's like almost like a cooking experiment. I mean, you put your tiny corals, you you prepare them. Corals are great because you can um, take pieces off them and grow them into racks, and and these little um, corals act as independent colonies. So you you can then go ahead and do experiments like you know, well, let's expose one group to a lot of temperature. Let's describe another group you know too much light and so on and what came out resoundingly was temperature a couple of degrees above the sort of summer maximum and you start to see corals bleach so by the end of the 80s we were pretty sure that it was a temperature signal going down most of us didn't want to describe the fact that this is probably global warming Leslie Hughes's place backs onto the Hawkesbury River in Sydney. The birds are singing, the garden smells of eucalypts. How are you doing? I'm really good, yeah, thank good. you. Oh, this is nice. I'm Leslie Hughes. I'm a professor of biology, uh, now retired from Macquarie University, and an ecologist by background. We're doing this interview on a beautiful, clear, blue spring day in Sydney. Is it challenging to be talking about a pending catastrophe when... Yeah the world seems so perfect on a day like today. It is. It's a challenge. And, of course, we need that respite. If you were living in a place or during events, and some people are, of course, around the world, where every day is a challenge to live from either climate or something else, it would be really, really tough. You know, in some ways having those beautiful sunny days where you wake up and all is good with the world is really important for your mental health. But it also makes talking about gloom and doom and catastrophe and what we could face even more challenging if we want people to change their behaviour. Hughes has become one of Australia's most recognisable and influential climate change scientists. But she started out in the early 1980s looking at ants. So how do we go from ants to To climate climate change? So I've always been interested in animal behaviour and I did my PhD on ants dispersing seeds around because it's quite an important part of Australian ecology. But after four years of following ants around the bush, and I still love ants, but I figured that I didn't want to spend the rest of my career doing that. And my then PhD supervisor said to me, well, you know, what about climate change? Maybe that's something you should look into. And this was in about 1989 to 1990. And I thought, oh, well, you know, if I do something that sounds a bit more applied and a bit more important, maybe I'll actually get a job. So I had quite a a mercenary uh, introduction to climate change. I can confess that. So around 1990, what's the world of climate change 
academia look like? Is everybody doing it? No, in fact, I could at that time read all of the literature on climate change, all of Every it. paper that comes out? Pre- pretty much. Right. You know, at one point you could fit all the people working in climate change and biodiversity into a phone box in Australia, basically. So right about now, scientists are starting to warn the public about global warming. In 1988, so far, is so much warmer than 1987 that barring a remarkable and improbable cooling, 1988 will be the warmest year on the record. In 1988, James Hansen, a leading climate scientist at NASA, gives his historic testimony to Congress. This evidence represents a very strong case, in my opinion, that the greenhouse effect has been detected and it is changing our climate now. While James Hansen had already testified to Congress, he was way out in front of the pack. It was really not a subject of political interest, social interest, economic interest. It was really more of an academic interest. So you had no concerns or you didn't think this is going to be huge for the next, I for, for the rest be, of my life? I thought it would be big eventually, but I think it seemed a long way off in terms of being a real problem. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. In the 1990s, Leslie Hughes is already thinking about what climate change might mean for all the world's animals and plants. The sort of ecology 101 is that animals and plants live in the place where climate is suitable for them. And ultimately, climate is what determines where something lives. So it was very clear that as climate changes, where species could live was also going to change. So I was interested in that sort of geographical question, you know, as the climate changes, will the species in this location be able to survive or will they need to go somewhere else? Those sorts of species were going to be very vulnerable, even to a small amount of climate change, especially if they weren't mobile, if they couldn't fly, if they couldn't swim, if they were stuck where they were and the climate changes where they are, it was pretty clear that a lot of those species were actually going to be in trouble. Can you think of an example, even from back then, of a species that was maybe stuck? Uh, Well, the the poster child of climate change is the mountain pygmy possum, Baramus parvus, which is a very cute little possum that is restricted to 
a few locations in the Snowy Mountains, but it hibernates under the snow in wintertime. It was one of the first species that was sort of a bit of a red flag for people interested in climate change impacts because snow as it heats up is going to be less and less available. And for those species that need snow in the wintertime to basically protect themselves, they stay warmer under the snow than they would on top of the snow. Not only was this species apparently dependent on snow, but it was also very restricted. So it's the sort of species that people were worried about soonest. Yeah. As Hughes is worrying about ecosystems, Herr Goldberg is seeing reefs bleaching more and more often, and on a scale that, until the 1980s, hadn't been recorded before. That's despite the fact that lots of people have been going in the water and studying marine life in this situation. So when do you first start to really worry about corals in a warming world? Well, I, I, I guess the critical point is where sea temperatures rise to a point where the corals experience stressful conditions every year or, or every couple of years. At that point, you, you, you get corals dying faster than they can be recovered. So you've got this situation, beautiful symbiosis, it starts to fall over and bleach, and then it continues to be stressful, ongoing. And this could be high light, it could be temperature, it could be, you know, a disease. And that's been steadily increasing over the last several decades. And there's very little else to explain it. It's high temperature that's doing this. Now, why? By the early 1990s, reports are starting to stack up of coral reefs turning white. In 1994, Hergelberg is in Tahiti. A bleaching event started in the Central Pacific and started to affect countries like Tahiti and, and the Cook Islands and so on. And in those cases, it was really the first time I'd seen sort of 100% corals bleached. Not dead, but bleached. And that was really quite striking, of course. Mm. So tell me about when you go in the water and you see... Yeah, well, it's amazing because basically you take a speedboat, you're going out to the, to the reef to see this, and suddenly the ocean starts to glow, this white colour. And there are, there's a tinge of blue and some of the sort of colours in that. But this fluorescence and hyper-reflectivity of the corals was because they'd lost their dinoflagellates. You get out to the water... You put your mask on, you backfill off the side of the boat, and then you see this thing in its glory. But of course, it's a reef dying. And I guess that's the important bit. Okay, it's very colourful, but it's, it's in the last stages before it loses not only the dinoflagellates, but also loses the coral that dies. So what's the worst bleaching that you've been in the water and experienced? I mean, I've been in places like uh, the Central Pacific where corals bleached and it was sort of, you know, 100% of corals on those northern coasts. So that's, that's literally, you're looking through your mask and you can't see anything except... Bleached corals. Bleached corals. In 1998, there's a massive global bleaching event. It's happening everywhere. You know, it's an extreme situation which hadn't occurred before at this sort of scale. It was affecting all corals in all regions. Maybe not every coral country or whatever experienced the same amount, but overall there was a huge loss of, of mm. corals. 
It's like, you know, all this wonderful biodiversity which yeah. we go on about, yet this is, you know, disappearing. So as all these corals are bleaching white, Herr Gulberg is working on a scientific paper. He's wondering, if the oceans keep warming, when will things start to get really dire for reefs? And so, you know, there I was putting together this paper to sort of try and bring together all the different interacting elements. And it was not going to answer everything, but it was sort of a timely paper in that respect. But one of the things I did do was to sort of uh, try and answer the question, uh, how long before these warming seas, uh, before it's a crisis in coral reefs? And it begs that question of, you know, where's this going? If it gets above this sort of temperature, you know, you get a spike, you've got a bleaching event, and that's, that's no good. And, and so, well, the first modelling, putting together, there's the sea temperature doing this, here's what we know the corals can survive, was in a couple of decades, you know, which, have, which really surprised me. I thought, oh, I must have made a mistake. So it's a couple of decades away that you think, wow, quite a lot yeah, of these you know, so the question be is, bleaching annually. How long, does this become, how long before this becomes a problem? Mm. And I'm thinking end of the century. End of the 20... 20- first century yeah. do you think it, uh, yeah i think time, it's hundreds of years away yeah right right so you think it's a it, it's a problem that we might have to deal with in a in a hundred years but the data is telling you something different by 2040 they were saying we were going to have the loss of coral reefs because we know that they're not surviving these heating events and now you're getting them every year and that's yeah so the so first how, time how do you feel well i just start- was like i didn't i didn't believe it i was like oh no that's that's not possible so redid the analysis i talked to the climate people that were giving me the support in terms of models and sure enough no, no what way you cut it you got bleaching events every year by 2040 2050 and so you've got this harbinger of, of a change. As Herr Goldberg's research gets published in 1999, Leslie Hughes is also making her findings public. So I think in about 2000, you write a paper that is almost ringing the bell because you write that there was already evidence that climate change was affecting a lot of species. So the first paper, which was a review published in 2000, was actually the first review drawing together examples of species where climate change was pretty clearly already affecting their life cycles or their distribution. The second paper that was published in Nature in 2004 was actually at the time extremely controversial. In fact, I remember finding out that the editor of Nature had told the lead author, Chris Thomas, that they got more letters protesting to Nature about that paper than they'd ever had for any other paper published in Nature to date. What were people worried about? Well, the paper was the first one really that drew two phrases together, species extinctions and climate change. It was really the first paper to try and mathematically quantify how many species were going to be threatened with extinction because of climate change. And the numbers were big. Today's children will likely see thousands of animals disappear in their lifetime. It could be part of the continuing fallout from the climate change crisis. Hughes and her colleagues are projecting that in less than 50 years, as many as a third of all species could be on an unstoppable journey to extinction. And you think, 10, 20, 30 years' time, will this all be gone? Talking to these three scientists, they all have a moment like this when they look at the data and they realise that something is seriously wrong. 
One of their colleagues told me that these are not called eureka moments, but oh shit moments. For Graham Pierman, this happens in the late 1980s when he's looking at cores of ice. So your measurements of CO2 in the atmosphere, they were only available from the point where you were doing them. How did we get to understand what the measurements look like compared with, say, a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago? You came up with a way to get around that problem. It's really about the fact that if you look at the temperature changes or the rainfall changes over a 10-year period and they're trending in a particular direction, you don't know whether this is just a short fluctuation in the system. Was this just part of an oscillation, a natural variation? So the imperative for me, at least at the time, was how can we go back in time and recover air that existed back in 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and see what the concentration was like then. And I searched around and thought, well, actually one way of doing that might be to extract air that was trapped in ice, in bubbles in ice, all those many years before. And so I talked with uh, Bill Budd, who was a professor at Melbourne University, who had a store of ice cores that had been drilled out of Antarctica. And he referred me to his PhD student, David Etheridge, and said, well, David will help you. And we worked out a way of taking some of that ice that could be dated. So we could say this ice came from a period a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago when the bubbles were actually trapped in the ice and then get the air out without contaminating it. We developed a technique of getting the bubbles out without melting and we now know for almost one million years what the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere was through each of the ice ages because it went up and down with the ice ages. But what we do know is that now the concentration we have is higher than any time in the last almost one million years. What, what do you think when you see what it's telling you? Well, it was telling us that, yeah, those natural variations are there, but it also told us that they were small compared with what we were doing or what we were likely to do if we continued down the track of putting greenhouse gases back into the atmosphere. These moments of discovery, they're intoxicating for Graham Pierman. It's why he does science. But he can't escape what it could mean for the future. So, yeah, we were excited about the fact that we found what we wanted to find, and that is a context in which the current changes, the changes due to humans, were placed in this geological timescale of a million years. Excited, but also, is it starting to confirm your worst fears? It's confirming a point that I really want to stress, and that is that the system that we're dealing with, the natural Earth system, is finite and that it is possible for human activities to perturb that system in a way that may have profound effects over time. For Hughes, at first, she's excited by what she's finding. It was good to be part of a team of people that had brought together a lot of different data sets that we'd been working on and put it together to make a pretty, in my view, compelling story. And I... I was excited that it was raising the awareness of what species 
could be facing, yeah. you know, really bringing it home to people that, that climate change is not a benign phenomenon. It actually has real consequences. At what stage does this shift from being an exciting academic and intellectual exercise yes. to being something that worries you on a yeah. personal level? Look, I think I didn't ever have a light bulb moment. You know, some people have light bulb moments about climate change where they're, they're going through their lives very happy and contented and suddenly they get really, really scared because they read something or they hear something or they experience something. That wasn't the case with me. Because I got into climate change early in terms of research, it, it was a sort of a gradual thing with me, you know, moving gradually from being something that was academically interesting that I thought I could build a research career in to being, you know, sleepless night type thing. Yeah, because I think if, if a member of the public is reading about the imminent kind of demise for hundreds of thousands of species, yes. I think some people might dwell on that and, mm -hmm. and it, that could be that could be extremely difficult. Yeah, especially when you feel powerless to stop it. I recognise his sense of powerlessness as well. I've written a lot of stories about climate change over the years, some big ones, but it feels like the world just keeps turning as if nothing's wrong. Is there a point where you start to think, I need to be... I need to also be an advocate or yep. for, for taking action. That was a gradual process. I didn't wake up one morning and thought I need to be a science communicator, you know, and I wasn't before. Why was it? Why did it feel important? Well, because it was very clear when you looked at the data that the climate was really starting to change way over and above natural variability compared to, say, the 70s or 80s. So there seemed to be a need to educate and inform people um, so they would make the right decisions about things, whether in their personal lives or yeah. their political decisions. This urge to ring the bell. All three scientists talked about this, but it comes at a cost. How are you feeling at that time? And well, I think one thing is that I hadn't quite realised that over time you... You're sort of, even though you know the science is good, and you, you, it's almost like you get an ulcer because you're always on guard, making sure that you get the messages across accurately and precisely. Their warnings are mostly ignored. I think it's naivety that if you go through the whole process of the rigor of conducting science, that at the end of the day, surely people will understand what you're saying here they will incorporate those risks into what they do and so on. Well, it doesn't work that way. And the science is met with personal attacks. Do you think that those threats to your colleagues, were they an attempt to... Shut them down. Shut them down? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did it not give you second thoughts? Maybe I shouldn't be doing this? This is Look, I, getting ridiculous. I, I, never, I never got to the point where I thought I shouldn't be doing it. I, I, in some ways, I think it probably just made me more determined because, yeah. you know, if you give in to people like that, they win. The fight for change. That's where we'll be going next in part two of Weight of the World. Way to the World was produced by me, Graham Redfern, and Camilla Hannan, 
Sound design and mixing by James Milson and Camilla Hannan. Production assistance by Melanie Chun, Jacob Wallace and Daniel Seymour. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. We've also produced videos and articles as part of this series and to have a look, go to theguardian.com and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. If you like the series, tell your friends and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks for listening. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.